0: So, I want to talk this morning about three things. I'm going to talk about the continuity of fathers as guardians of the family. I want to talk about the recovery of mothers as integral to the family. And I want to talk about the flourishing of all members of the family, and then we're going to close together by having communion to ground ourselves in the gospel, and then I think we'll just have a time of of being family, of conversation. Those of you who are brand new, we love the fact that each week people are brand new with us looking in, it'd be great for you to get to know us and for us to get to know you (laughs) if you'd like to. So that's how we'll kind of conclude this morning. Number one, the continuity of fathers as guardians of the family, because we're a family, right? That's what the church is uh, in so many ways. I, I learned this week that out of Paul's 13 letters in the New Testament, he, uh, he talks about the church with what you might call familial language on 277 occasions, 277 times. That's how he chooses to define the church. He often calls it the household of God, for example. And it's not a, the church is not a family that kind of curves in on itself I guess in the West, often families can feel very, very private spheres that they curve in on themselves. A family is ultimately for itself and for its own ends. Uh, I was at a great conference a couple of years ago called The Future of Complementarity, which hugely helped and influenced me for my vision for for our family and indeed our church family. And one of the speakers, Hannah Anderson, said that in the West, the, the home is a little bit like a capitalist docking station. The home is that kind of place that we go to, we bolt the doors, we bunker down, we recharge, and then we go back out into the world to do the real stuff. But actually, in in the ancient world, the household was nothing like that. It was a far more fluid, open, organic dynamic. People coming and going, people that weren't related to the family being part of the family. And Hannah Anderson said that rather than being a capitalist docking station, uh, the church of God, the family of God, is an outward-looking table uh, and in my language, with the door wide open and there a seat at a table for every single person. Yeah. The other image that um, Hannah Anderson brought out on that occasion, which really spoke to me, was a picture of an American pioneer family in the 1800s. I'm a former history teacher, so occasionally I just unashamedly crowbar in a history reference. But she just made the point that unlike the kind of 21st century capitalist docking station home where we we bunker down and actually the church is supposed to be a family, but a family on a mission, a family on the move... Not where you have to wear head coverings, ladies, don't worry, that's not where I'm going with this message. But a family that's on the move, a family that's on mission, a family that is moving west, as it were, overcoming threats and fears and dangers and seeking to establish brand new communities that are thriving and flourishing and that are for the good of those around them. It's a family on a mission. So the question about the church is, when it comes to things like role and responsibility and authority and so forth, the question is not, how is the organization structured? Who's at the top of the tree? Who who kind of gets the final say? That's not the question that we're asking about the church. We're asking, how do the mothers and fathers of the church relate to the family and relate to each other? How do the mothers and fathers relate to each other? How do they function in biblical complementarity so that their distinctiveness brings timeless beauty to God's family? Okay? And like I say, one of the things that we, in King Church has always believed and that we conclude is that the teaching of the Bible says that the, the, kind of the guardian of the household, the father of the household, or the fathers of the household are qualified, spiritually qualified men. And that isn't something that we've just thought of. Isn't something that King's Church thought of when it came out here on mission, it came a little bit west from Wimbledon to Kingston. It isn't something that churches in our family have just thought of. It isn't something that makes us very popular, so it's not what I'm trying to do it to win a popularity contest, I can assure you. Especially even in the church, as much as the, the wider, wider society. And neither is that conviction found only in the New Testament. Which is why we've taken time to tell the big story of the Bible and of Genesis. Because you go right back to God's timeless, beautiful design. And you do see this, I would put to you, at play in Genesis. And this is week two. So if you haven't caught up and you missed week two, this is kind of week two, Genesis two stuff. When we said that God gives the same commission to Adam and Eve. The same equally thrilling commission they both have to establish dominion and rule. To reflect the image of the triune God together, both distinct and one, and also to multiply together. Same commission. But Adam, within that commission, is given a particular mandate. And his mandate, we said, is a little bit like that of a sacrificial guardian. He's given a particular mandate, we said, to guard the garden, to keep it, as the, as the passage says, the text says. To guard the truth, to tell it to Eve, and indeed he's held responsible for not doing that in Genesis 3. And to guard his wife or to hold fast to her, as the text puts it. And he fails. He fails, as does Eve for her part. And the design is fractured and marred and horribly tarnished. But interestingly, God doesn't seek to tear up the design and start again. What he does seek to do is to redeem it. Ultimately, the Old Testament points towards the need for the design to be restored and healed in Jesus and as the Old Testament goes on, God continues the part of this design. So he appoints uh, these sacrificial, guardian-like men to the key household responsibilities in the Old Testament. The priests, the kings, and the written prophets. Not all the prophets, but the, the written ones. Some of you are having some ABC moments already, that's all right. And then we get to Jesus. And if anyone was not restricted or constrained by cultural pressures, it was Jesus as we'll see by the way in which he treats women in, uh, as I go on in this, in this message. But Jesus does choose to appoint 12 men as his apostles. Not all of his disciples, but his apostles, he appoints 12 men. He makes a decision to do that. And as we move through the New Testament, this theme of fatherly, loving, sacrificial men being the heads of the church under Christ, it, it continues all the way through the New Testament. I'll give you some um, some scripture references. Ephesians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, Hebrews 13, 1 Peter 5, Acts 20. They all talk in the language of elders and shepherds and overseers, and pastors and so on and so forth. And either implicitly or explicitly, the assumption is that these are fathers of the spiritual households. I should say that when, when one is when, as an elder, talking about what it is to be an elder is an interesting place to be in. So, yeah, I just speak that out that it's an odd dynamic what I'm in at the moment, but it's important that we do it, and, uh, and it's God's word that we do so. And what's often described about these, these fathers is, of, is their character is the thing that is of primary importance. Actually, the only real skill that you hear about is not like a raft of kind of impressive leadership skill sets. The only gift that you hear about really is the ability to teach, to teach the word of God and to understand and defend doctrine. Phil Moore, who uh, leads Everyday Church London and has a kind of apostolic Ephesians 4 oversight of us as a church, he helpfully defines uh, what we understand to be biblical New Testament eldership with, with five Ds. And he says that these are qualified, uh, qualified men who are first of all to display godly character, like I say. Preaching this stuff is as much a challenge to me as it is to you, if not more so. That they are to, have a, uh, to set the direction of the life and trajectory of the church. That they are to have the ability and the courage to define doctrine. That fourthly, they are to have the, the gifting and the grace and the courage to be able to discipline as all good fathers do, lovingly and kindly and gently. On occasion, there's occasion for fathers to bring discipline and protection to the family. And fifthly, they are to delegate. They are to delegate. Sometimes I think elders have forgotten that bit and eldership models have been where they do all of church life. No, no, no. These New Testament elders, they give away. They give away authority. They give away responsibility. They give away permission. They give away opportunity. They release and equip the sons and the daughters and the other mothers and fathers in the life of the church to minister and to advance the mission of the family. All very well, you might say. But what should the results of that be? What should it look like when a plural, because it's always a pluralistic team, it's always elders plural in the Testament, what should the results of that be? Because like, let's just have a a sort of self-aware moment here, at least for me. When a man stands up and talks about why he and other men should kind of have a bottom-line responsibility, and have authority, like that's a thing, right? That doesn't always go well, hasn't always gone well in society, isn't going well in parts of the world now, and hasn't always gone well in the church. And I'm sure all of us, to different degrees, when you put um, men and authority and the home, be it the family or the church, together, that can be a disastrous sometimes combination. Men, authority, family. And some of you will know that firsthand in your own families, your own upbringings, your own contexts. You don't need me to press on what you already know. And some of you will know that in the church family, where those things have gone wrong. And this, I'll just I'll be honest, if you're brand new, be totally honest with you, here at King's Church, it hasn't always gone well for us. There have been some brilliant, godly, outstanding elders in the life of King's Church. We've also had two occasions when the lead elders needed to step down in really difficult circumstances. It's been painful and hard, and it's had painful effects on us. So we just have to kind of acknowledge that there's a thing at play here. What's it supposed to look like, though? Because we mustn't just say, well, it's gone wrong, and therefore I'm going to change my theology around it. Let's trust that God's word is timeless and beautiful, and if we understand it and apply it, it will cause beauty in the family. So I, I, I want to recognize where it's gone wrong. I just want you to not, you to not change your theology because of your experience. Though God knows your experience and loves you and there's grace in that for us. And it has been for us as a church. We're still here. And actually we're thriving and we're growing and we're going into a fresh season because of God's grace. So what should it look like? What should you receive, he says, on feeling slightly nervous. What should you be receiving as a church family from a team of male elders. Well, I mentioned Acts 20 as one place you can go to look to see some of the descriptions. So let's go there together. Acts chapter 20. And I love Acts chapter 20 because you've got Paul giving like one of his just spectacular kind of speeches. It's like Winston Churchill, Martin Luther King, all kind of rolled into one. And uh, verse 17 of Acts chapter 20 tells us that, or Luke tells us that from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders, plural, of the church to come to him. And then he goes on to tell them, listen, I'm going, this is what I want you guys to bring to your church family in Ephesus. He says this, verse 28. I'll just take you through the passage and we'll comment on it as I go along. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Just stop there. That's the first thing that uh, elders should be acutely aware of. Pay careful attention to yourself. He doesn't say go and read up on all the impressive leadership skill sets that are out there and have the 10 points. It's like, These are men who pay careful attention to the state of their hearts, who understand their own vulnerabilities and proclivities to sin, who are pursuing character above all else. Verse 28 continues. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Another word. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So not only do they care for the state of their own hearts, they care for their family. They care for their flock. It's a caring disposition that you should receive from these guys, Paul is saying. And not only do they care for the family, as all good fathers do for their children, they have a certain reverence towards it. Can you see that? Paul says, this is the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. (laughs) So, I think elders, Paul, those elders receiving that would have thought, I think, would have heard afresh wow, this is not just an organization I'm in charge of. This is the family of God, which God Himself has paid for with His life. That's why we're going to share communion together at the end to remind ourselves of what God has had to do to generate this spiritual family and cause us, if you are a Christian, to be adopted into it. There's a reverence towards the church, a sense of elders saying, these are precious people. Yes, their sin was so serious that God needed to die for it. But they're so loved that God was delighted and willing to die for them. So they're precious. As you can tell, I'm teaching myself as much as I'm teaching you. Verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, To draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So I think you can see here this language of guardianship is where it kind of plays out. These are men that guard the family, they're aware of threats. Our our struggle is not with flesh and blood, the Bible says, it's with spiritual authorities. There is a spiritual battle at play. There's an enemy, and he hates you, and he hates the church. And so it's, it's beholden upon all of us, but particularly elders, to be aware of those threats and to take action to protect the family. To be able to defend sound doctrine, to know what the word of God says and be able to defend it. Like I said, the teaching gift is really the one kind of gifting that's mentioned outside of character. And you notice Paul says they have the courage to admonish. I guess that goes back to Phil Moore's fourth D of bring discipline to the family. And again, let's have a sort of self-aware moment. We talk about admonishing and discipline and men and authority and churches and homes. and That could be a toxic combination for some of us. Discipline sounds heavy, authoritarian. Can do. But look at how Paul does it. I haven't ceased for three years to admonish every day. Sorry. For three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. I don't think that's Paul raging. It's It's Paul saying oh, my precious son, my daughter, my brother and sister in Christ, like, there's better for you. I love you. I'm for you. Don't don't go this way. (laughs) I think that's at the heart of what Paul is saying. This is not like, right, finger-wagging stuff. This is a man, this is a team of men who have the courage to say to you, I love you, I'm for you, I'm concerned for you, there is so much more for you when you step into the goodness of what Jesus Christ has, who he is, and what obedience means. So with tears, I implore you. That's the kind of heart that you should receive when discipline is enacted. Verse 33. I'll just skip, a, skip on to verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In other words, they're not motivated by material possessions, Sounds obvious, but it's worth calling out because there's a whole bunch of church leaders and elders and pastors around the world who've clearly got themselves massively entangled in material possessions. For Paul, it's like, pff, material possessions. <laughs> We're not storing up things for ourselves for the now. We're looking for an eternal inheritance of, of saved, mature souls in the family of God. Verse 11, uh, Verse 35. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So elders are people who, who look after those who are vulnerable, who don't say, well, what can you contribute? Not much, right, you're off. Sling them over the, uh, overboard. This boat's going this way, and if you can't contribute, all the best. That's not, that's not what... The elders are about, in Paul's language, they care for those that are vulnerable. They care for those that are struggling and that are weak. They're generous. They wring themselves out in the service of others. Or at least they aim to, and they cry out for the grace of God to enable them to. And when they don't, they, they, they sit in that space of repentance and confession and they go again. Or at least that's where I, I sit. They wring themselves out, not for what they get back, not for what they get back, but for what they can give and for what you can receive. Verse 36, last bit. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. That's because he's leaving and he's told them that they won't see him again being most sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken them that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. I think if you were an elder at Ephesus being commissioned by Paul Paul then, you would never have forgotten uh, that moment. And I'm sure they would have got it wrong, those guys. But I think they would have heard being an elder of a church is about being a loving, gentle, courageous, sacrificial father who, if necessary, as Paul's about to do lays his life down in order that the family might flourish if you're brand new here you might not know who the elders are I'm one and Patrick Corbett and Mark Goddard are the other two and I want to just take a moment to uh, (laughs) tearfully I want to just commend them to you Uh, But not because that's a nice thing to do, uh, but because I think it is appropriate from this passage. Like, these are guys who are doing just this. And occasionally I hear things like, well, we don't see very much of them at the front. As though that is the bottom line of what it is to be an elder. I want to tell you, these guys are ringing themselves out in your service, late night meetings, thinking about things, Patched on the other side of the world on business, and yet he's still messaging me about this morning and other things that we're thinking and talking about. Mark is upstairs right now, ringing himself out for the kids. Thursday evening, he got back from Hong Kong, jet lagged beyond description, there he was at a trustees meeting, somehow speaking coherently and wisely. Because these are men who I think have absorbed some of this. And yes, they do teach from time to time and teach well. But actually, these fathers in the house, it's not about what they do up here. It's about what they do behind the scenes and many aren't looking, wringing themselves out for the good of the family, having those one-on-one conversations. And I want to commend them to you. And I'm sure you already are, but if you're not yet thanking them, please do. If you're not yet praying for them, for us, please do. It makes a huge difference And uh, I'm just so proud of them and proud to lead uh, alongside them. I want to encourage you to aspire to it. I want to put a little challenge out to men and women to aspire to the characteristics of eldership. I want to put a challenge out to you men to aspire to the office and the role of eldership. I think we're a bit Western, a bit polite on occasions. I would love conversations where someone comes to me, a young man or older man, And since I've been reading this stuff, I see the urgency. I see the call for loving, sacrificial fathers to cherish and nourish this family. Like, how do I get there? How can I be the kind of father that one day might be entrusted to nurture and love the family? Hey, where are those conversations, men? Yeah? I would love to to challenge you with that and have more of those kinds of conversations. Bit of family news for you. Bit more church family news for you. this weekend, I had the privilege of uh, phoning John Ford and set offering him a job on staff here at King's Church. Uh, job is... Job? That's a Freudian slip. I will not now call you Job and Gated you to... <laughs> or Job. Uh, but... Uh, John is going to be what we've called an assistant staff pastor as of a couple weeks time. He's going to come on staff initially three days a week, uh, but we trust in time building up to four and five days a week. If you don't know John and Sophie, they have just recently landed from Istanbul. Uh, They were here in the church for many years. John was an elder here in the church many years, and we had the joy of sending them out to plant the church in Istanbul, which they've done. Seen people saved and added to the family of God, a Turkish-speaking, gospel-believing, spirit-filled church. They've landed back with us here, and I think we are so uh, convinced as uh, elders and eldership couples and a wide leadership team and as trustees that this is God's timing for God's purposes. This is not John needs a job. This is actually the King Church family has been looking for two or three years for this kind of person to step in uh, to that kind of full-time office life, uh, to come alongside me, uh, to bring a pastoral shepherding heart into the life of the family, to teach, and indeed to keep our eyes focused on the mission to keep our eyes focused well beyond Kingston, towards the Middle East, towards the ends of the earth, to be that kind of 1800s family that's got its caravan ready to go, where we're packed and ready to go and be sent, whether it's the church plant around the corner or the other ends of the earth, part of John and Sophie's heart. And indeed, John's role is to keep that privilege of partnering with the, the commission of God to take the gospel forward to the ends of the earth. So John will start in a couple of weeks' time. Can we just welcome him, please? It's worth pointing out that John won't be an elder. He's not going to have that, that um, particular office, if you like, at the moment. He was. And our desire and our expectation is that in time he will be, because we're convinced he has those qualities and characteristics. But we also believe it makes sense to not be hasty, as the Bible says, and laying on of hands, take our time over these things to allow him and Sophie, not least, to settle back in uh, the UK. So we want to get there, and we expect to get there, but it won't be happening uh, in the next few weeks, more likely in the coming months or into next year. I want to also commend... Um, Jason to you who was mentioned earlier on for his literal fathering but Jason's also a very valuable member of our eldership team sits on it contributes so much to it and indeed our wives have been a massive part of that as well of joining in as one flesh couples in fact we're doing this series right now is, is in no small part due to dinners that we had together where we talked and prayed and, and chatted and felt a heart for this very series speaking of other Leaders like our wives and other women in the church, I want to talk now as we begin to uh, head into the second part, which won't be as long as the first part, not because it's less important, but because of time, is the recovery of mothers as integral to the family. John recommended to me recently a wonderful book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Just beautiful. Just opens your eyes, literally, to what's really happening in the Middle Eastern context in those various parables and things. And the author, um, Kenneth Bailey, says this about women at the time in which Jesus lived. He says, with the passage of time and the rise of the rabbinic tradition, the position of women by New Testament times was at all levels inferior to men. He says that it had got a lot worse, if you like, in the 100 years since the Old Testament closed, 400 years since the Old Testament closed and the New Testament opened. In all positions, women knew nothing of the kind of equality that God had put in place at creation. And then along comes Jesus, into that context Raised by this extraordinary mother, who I think must have given him an incredible perspective on how to treat women, he revolutionizes how women are treated. He re elevates and brings equality, as God would have it, right back into its timeless beauty. Let me give you six quick examples. Ready? Number one, he had female disciples. Not the 12 and his apostles, but he had female disciples. I love what he says in Matthew 12 when it says, stretching out his hand towards his disciples, Jesus said, here are my mother and my brothers. At which point all the Jewish rabbis are going, excuse me? He says, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. These are my disciples, he said. Radical for the time. Secondly, some of his female disciples traveled with him. So we hear in Luke chapter 8 verses 1 to 3 that uh, Jesus and his male and female disciples were traveling together from village to village, therefore staying overnight as a band of disciples who were neither married to each other nor related to each other, which was outrageous at the time. And yet so determined was Jesus to place women at the heart of his ministry that he was having them staying over, if you like, night after night in different villages. And as verse 3 in Luke 8 says, a number of those women were funding his ministry. Paying for it, it says, from their own resources. Thirdly, these female disciples studied with him. So we often look at the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10, and we teach about it, and I've talked about it, from the lens of don't be too busy to have time with Jesus. Ever heard that sermon before? Well, you have, because I've preached it. But the other, I think the more deeper part to it, I was helped by Kenneth Bailey in this, is that what is a profundity of the language that is used that maybe we miss in our Western culture? Because Luke describes Mary as sat at the Lord's feet listening to his teaching, which is basically the language you would use to, to describe a student sitting at the feet of a rabbi, a male student sitting at the feet of a, of a rabbi. In fact, that's how Paul talks about his discipleship of Gamaliel, Sitting at the feet of. So what Jesus is doing when he gently rebukes Martha is not simply saying, oh, don't worry about the potatoes. Mary needs to have some time with me. He's defending her right and privilege to be a theological student and disciple with him on mission with him. Fourthly, Jesus continually uses lots and lots of illustrations that involve women, which again, we don't really notice. But Bailey points out that at that time, that was unheard of. But Jesus makes a deliberate point. He uses loads of examples. The lost coin, the mending of the garment, the widow, the indifferent judge, the woman who ties a coin. Loads of examples where he particularly uses women to make his point. Because he knows what we all know, that stories connect our head to our heart and, and, and press things down to the deepest levels of our being. And so for those of us that teach and can use a certain type of illustration sometimes, it's quite a challenge to think how we're doing that. Jesus thought very carefully about how he was going to draw women as well as men into discipleship of him. Fifthly, he treats women with unbelievable respect and compassion. There are loads of examples of that, not least the woman at the well, which has been a foundational passage for us this last year or so. Sixthly, and finally, it is women who are tasked with being the first evangelists. At the resurrection, it is women who are given, who see Jesus, who are given the good news of spreading this remarkable, life-changing, world-changing, eternity-changing news to others. And Kenneth Bailey says that if you compare Mark's account, the gospel of Mark, if you compare his account of Jesus' burial with Jesus' resurrection, you see the following. The men failed at the cross and ran away. At the resurrection, the women took courage and bore witness to all, both men and women. What does it all mean? Is this just me trying to sort of like get a nod from a, a Western secular society? Yeah, yeah we're all about quality as well. Ah, Jesus is doing something far more profound and timeless than that. He is restoring the Genesis 1 2 design. That's got so tarred and marred, he's restoring it. He's taking he's elevating women again and returning them to this place of equality with men. And if you see that, if you see the Genesis mandate lens through what Jesus is doing, you can see he's commissioning men and women with the same Genesis mandate again. They're being told to establish the rule of Christ, dominion. They're being told to bear the image of God. And they're being told to multiply image bearers together, ultimately spiritual image bearers, far more profoundly than physical image bearers. And then we reach the rest of the New Testament, and we get to the writings of Paul. Taking a rattle, speed rattle tour through the Bible to some extent here, and Paul said some things about women and men that kind of make your eyes water sometimes, at least from a sort of modern Western context. But Paul, just like Jesus, passionately believed in women as partners to men in the gospel and as gifted leaders in the church. You just go to Romans 16, for example. His kind of closing remarks of his sort of seminal letter, the, the, the letter to the church in Rome. And he just lists a whole raft of women as right at the heart of his ministry, of gospel advance in a way that is very challenging. He begins by honoring Phoebe. who was probably a deaconess and probably the person who carried the letter itself to Rome. He refers to Priscilla and Mary and Trithena and Trifosa and Persis and Junia. Not as the women that helped out a bit, as his fellow workers in Christ Jesus who worked hard. He describes Rufus' mother as someone who, quotes was a mother to me as well. Part of the reason why Paul thrived was because a woman who already had a physical son, made a spiritual son of Paul and in some way discipled him, encouraged him, loved him and to some extent made him the man that he became. So, what does Paul mean when he says some of these things that cause us to get a bit twitchy? For example, in 1 Timothy 2 verse 12, at least in certain areas of Christianity, a a famous verse when Paul says, writing to uh, his sort of an elder protégé in Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Ouch, most of us feel, I think, when we read that. What does it mean? What do we at King's Church understand that to mean? Well, first of all, what does it not mean? He says, not ducking the issue, what does it not mean? Well, it doesn't mean that Paul thinks women are inferior to men. We just established that. And to make it really clear, in Galatians three twenty-eight, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. All of you are one in Christ Jesus. Which is not, as certain other streams of Christianity like to say, a sort of disregarding of any difference and distinction between men and women. That's not the, Paul, it's not the point Paul is making. It can't be given what he says in Ephesians 5, as we heard last week. He's not throwing out distinction and difference and role. What he is saying is there is no room in the church of Jesus Christ for any sense of inferiority or superiority. We are all one, united to Christ in salvation and united to each other in the church. And he doesn't mean that women, or indeed men that aren't elders, don't teach. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Colossians three sixteen, Acts 18, 26. Romans 12, 4-7. All exhort men and women to be teaching one another from the Bible, from the word of God. So what is he trying to get at? What's he trying to get at? If on the one hand, he's encouraging all of us, all of you, to be teaching each other, men and women, and he's also saying, I don't permit women to teach or have authority. What's he trying to say? Well, given that the next chapter in 1 Timothy, which of course wasn't a chapter when Paul wrote it, it's just the next paragraph is a a conversation about the qualifications for eldership. Paul is talking in the context of eldership. He seems to be saying something on the lines of, I do not want a mother in the church to take a voice that is for fathers. I don't want a woman to take a voice in the church that is the voice that is reserved for the fathers, for the guardians, for the elders of the household. He's saying, I think there is a teaching that is reserved for the fathers, for the guardians, for the elders of the house to do. And it carries a particular authority, a particular responsibility, not least in setting doctrine and establishing direction and bringing discipline and so on and so forth. And that shouldn't be subverted, Paul is saying, in quite strong language. So how do we work this out here at King's Church? How do we... we really plumb the timeless beauty of what Paul is trying to get at when it comes to teaching on a Sunday, particularly. If we assume there's all kinds of teaching taking place outside of the church service on a Sunday, which I sincerely hope and believe there is, what about on a Sunday? Well, it's, it's our conviction, having sort of revisited these things afresh and studied these things afresh as a team, that the elders need to be doing the majority of the teaching on a Sunday, bringing that public proclamation, bringing that sense of doctrine and uh, and discipline if necessary and direction and so forth. So we will always, the pastors, the elders will always do the majority of the teaching on a Sunday, which at the moment looks like me, so I'm afraid you're stuck with me for a bit longer. It also means that we think the elders need to be the ones that set the content of and the vision for the series that we do. So even if we're not doing the teaching on a Sunday, we're setting the, the structure and the parameter and the culture of what it is that we teach. And then with those two things in play, what we not just are allowed to do, what we love to do is to invite other fathers and mothers from time to time to bring their teaching voice to the church. If you like, under and released by our authority and our responsibility. We've done that for a long time, but we haven't done it so much in terms of mothers, But occasionally we are so pleased to invite other fathers and mothers in the life of the church to bring something from the Word of God that will teach us and bless us and encourage us. It won't have a direction-setting, discipline-bringing, doctrine-defining tone, because that's in keeping with the office of eldership. And I would always do what I've done for the last four years, which I love doing, which is working with the person in advance of the message. I love doing that. Now, hear me. That's not because... I'm some kind of micromanaging CEO. I want to kind of dot every, every I and cross every T and manage the message and turn the other teachers and preachers into clones of me. I hope. I hope what it is about is taking the scriptures and taking my calling as a spiritual father seriously and saying, actually, I want to come alongside you, my brother or my sister. You're a spiritual father and mother as, as well in our family. Can I come alongside you? You've got a gift to bring. You've got something to bring that's going to help us and teach us and bless us. Can I come alongside you and help you to bring that in all its fullness on a Sunday? That's what it's about. And that's what we'll continue to do. Finally, and this leads into the flourishing of all members of the family. Forgive me for being a bit longer than I normally am this morning, but there's just so much that I could have covered that I haven't, but I do want to cover some of these key things. How else do we want all the whole family, to bring its gifts and leadership, particularly into the life of the church. Well, King Church has always had loads of men and women leading and shaping and influencing in the life of the church. But We want to accelerate that. So one example is, at the moment we have a wider leadership team, some 20-plus people, men and women, that we've gathered together. And we're doing a sort of training track together, learning what it is to be courageous leaders. And, we'll get, and from that team, our plan is that we will appoint deacons. And just because Paul makes a big deal about elders, but he also makes a big deal about the office of deacons. And so our desire is from within that team in towards 2020 to appoint some as deacons who will lead a particular ministry area in the church. Others won't be deacons, but we really want their leadership role as well. And so they'll form one team from whom some are deacons and they will work with us probably once every two months. We'll meet together as eldership team with that team to work together, to lead together, to learn together, to be challenged together, to pray together in a sense of mothers and fathers leading the family of God together. We haven't yet, as a team, we haven't quite got to the theology of deaconship specifically and the practical outworkings of what deaconships are here at Kings, but we'll do that as a team. In fact, by next month, we'll be doing that together and hopefully more news about that in the new year. If you are, I guess I'll close with this, really. If you are a woman in this church, and if you are asking something on the lines of, why can't I be an elder here? Or why can't this other woman that I think is amazing and godly and gifted and talented be an elder here? Can I gently suggest to you that you're asking the wrong question? The question I would love uh, you to be asking is, what can I do here? Because I genuinely believe the opportunities are endless to be leading and shaping and influencing and serving in the life of the church. There are so many ministries. There is poverty to be alleviated. There is the gospel to be proclaimed. There are churches to be planted. There are the sick to be uh, ministered to and prayed for. There are children to be loved and led. There are Sunday services to put together. There are finances to be looked after and governed. I mean, the list is endless for what the Bible says all of us need to be doing and have the opportunity to do. I love the fact that we have men and women every year on the New Ground Leadership Academy this year being no different. Uh, So Kate Goddard and Emma Cornwall and Sarah Smith, alongside Andrew Smith and Ross Cornwall and Mike and Maurizio, are spending two years, as others have done, understanding what it is to be a biblical leader and shaper and influence in the life of the church. I want more conversations, men and women saying, when can I do this? Because we need as many leaders, as many shapers as we can to be able to say to God, use us. Can we play? We want to play. We want to be on the pitch playing. When it comes to church planting, I have said to fill more, we want to play. Let us join in with the plans for new grounds. Whatever it might be, near or abroad, we want to play. We want to be multiplying leaders in terms of services and churches, whatever God might have us for in the future. And we need a whole family of sons and daughters who know what it is to play their part. And we need mothers Mothers, whether you be 18 or 88, spiritual mothers who will bring what you have uniquely been given and gifted that fathers haven't into the life of the church to disciple and to pray and to minister. We need you, we want you, you're valuable, we can't do without you. One little final thing, as Mike mentioned, Ignite, which is happening not least thanks to uh, Joe and Alex and also Louise and Emeka. But for a long time, Ignite has been a a precious community in the life of the church that hasn't had a kind of mother or father, really. Mother or father saying, I'm with you, I'm for you, I belong to you, you are my leadership community in the life of the church. At the moment, you've got four people, Louise, the one bringing it all together, who are faithfully serving on a Sunday, having a great time, doing youth alpha, asking brilliant questions, I'm told. And Louise is doing spectacular things on a Friday evening, doubling the year five to year eight stuff on a Friday evening. So exciting. But I I, want to put to you, at the moment, we cannot really run a flourishing, well-envisioned youth work from 11 to 16, 11 to 18, without somebody, male or female, mother or father, putting their hand up and saying, I'll do that. I'll love these guys. I'll lead these guys. I'll cherish them. I'll nourish them. I'll take responsibility for them. So if you want one even more specific thing to consider, there it is. That, this, this will not continue of me just getting the same people to make something happen at the last minute. So we'll just have to stop it if the right people don't come forward and say, I will do it. So I, I said that sounding more sort of fierce than I meant to. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is it's often in church life, people assume somebody else will do it. And often it's the same people who kind of make it work. And actually, I'm just waiting for God to put his hand upon someone and say, why don't you be the one that takes our youth work, which was two boys and is now six boys and one girl. Why don't you be the one that takes it into the tens and into the twenties? Why don't you be the one who can go to uh, weddings and baby thanksgivings in the future and say, that person's following Christ because I got alongside them. They had these wacky questions when they were 14. I didn't understand hardly any of them, but I just listened. And here they are following Christ. Here they are planting churches. Here they are, mothering and fathering in the life of the church, advancing the gospel because I created a space to listen to them and to love them. Okay? I've gone on for longer than I meant to, but like I said, there's loads more I could have said. What we're going to do now is just to share communion together and then to move from communion into just a time of hanging out together. If the church is family, it hangs out, it chats, it processes, it prays for each other. But above all, Communion, the Lord's Supper, is what grounds us, right? I said that these things are important, but they're not the primary things. The primary things is what Jesus Christ has done. His perfect life that you and I couldn't have lived. His death that he paid for on our behalf. God shedding his own blood for us and being restored to fullness of life again that we might know life and not death forever. These are the things that we ultimately ground ourselves on. So if Christy um, and Ross could just uh, lead us in singing one song just as we share communion so we're going to sing I think Good Good Father and you can stand and sing in a moment you can go straight and take communion you can stay where you are and then go and take it you can pray with the person next to you whatever way works for you to ground yourself in this wonderful ritual meal of the Lord's Supper it's worth saying that the Lord's Supper is a meal a ritual for for Christians it would be odd to celebrate the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ for you if that's not the place you're at yet so if you're not there yet, committing your life to Jesus Christ, we'd ask you not to take communion, but to consider taking Christ. So please use these moments to come to your conclusions about who Jesus Christ is and was. And if you want to come and chat and say, that's the place I've got to, I would love to help you be ready to take communion one day when that, that would be appropriate. Okay, should we stand?